Okay, so this is our podcast number two, and this is our early morning walk. So our voices are a little raspy and we're a little out of breath. It's because it's both early and we're still out of shape. And we haven't gotten coffee yet. Right. So we're off to a coffee shop. Admittedly, I did have a little bit of coffee, so I might have cheated on me. A little pep in my step. If you're around LA and you see two people wired together talking, that's us. One's a little tall than the other. <laughs> Chances are it's us. Okay. So uh, the topic du jour. Yeah. What is the topic du jour? We're kind of zooming out because whenever we discuss any of these topics that we're talking about, whether it's public policy or Second Amendment or anything, we're really invoking the laws of this nation, and that's founded, of course, in the Constitution. So let's let's like let's pull back. Let's look at not just the Constitution, but the reasons why and how these laws were put into place in the first place, because that really is the architecture from which all these other conversations. You know, forget about morality. Forget about people's feelings. There are laws in this country. There's a design of this legal system in this country on all levels. But you're, and, you're talking. I mean, to, to summarize it, you're talking context and intent of laws and legal structures. Right. Right. And that's completely independent of, well, I feel it should be this way, or wouldn't it be great if it was all, we all sang Kumbaya. Kumbaya. Right. So, and I think this is, from my perspective, particularly important because what is going on in the, in the United States or America is constantly compared to being more successful or less successful to other cultures and countries like Europe or South America or, or whatnot. And their culture and their legal systems and their intent and and structure are very very different sometimes in explicit ways and sometimes in subtle ways so you know there's you, you have to think about well why is the uk more successful at x well they have 800 years of doing y and their laws and legal systems and culture are set up to do that where we're not so you know all countries are not created equal all countries have different legal systems and cultures and moral outlooks and you know that gets expressed both in law and in culture and in education etc i think we should take a big step back and look at the foundation of the country and sort of what the intent was what the founders were trying to do with the legal system how it's played out where there have been inflection points in our understanding or interpretation of it etc they do call it the great american experiment right because we have broken new ground no country's ever had the liberties and rights granted to the people. There, well, stop right there. Liberties and rights are not granted. That's the first. That is, uh, you got me again. <laughs> you got me again. We had this conversation last week. Right. That's that's the first, you know, fundamental misunderstanding, right? In, in many other countries, they say, these are the following rights that are granted to you by the government and that you can exercise within our society. And... The United States Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and the Anti-Federalist and Federalist Papers, which are writings about these documents, um, clearly say that these are divine and God-given rights and that the Constitution exists not to grant rights, but to limit the power of the federal government around those rights which you have natively and inalienably. Inalien inalienable in their context means unable to divide or give away or sublimate right you have an inalienable right to free speech you have an inalienable right to defend yourself you have an inalienable right to associate with who you want to associate with these are rights that god gave you or as they would say the divine providence or nature 
So it's almost as if we don't need as a, as as a, as citizens, we don't need to read the Constitution. The lawmakers need to read the Constitution. Correct. The lawmakers are the limitations on government, not on people. Uh-huh. It doesn't say sort of the audience for the Constitution, essentially. Well, it's not a hundred percent true. We are the audience of the Constitution in so far as we participate in government life and in so far at the time people needed to vote on and approve the constitution the constitution is a compact it's a contract between the states right so so let's take a big step back and let's just sort of talk about revolutionary history because there's a very long arc and it doesn't just include the united states so the sort of age of revolution can roughly be sketched out to 1650 to 1850, 200 years. And there were a number of revolutions that occurred. You know, the, the ones that sort of most prominent and most applicable in my mind to the United States are the Cromwellian or Glorious Revolution in England in the mid-1600s, the American Revolution, and the French Revolution. And they're all related. So the, the fundamental governing force from, say, roughly the you know, Middle Ages, five, six hundred until 16, 1800, was one of monarchy. One where there was a king and vassals and princes and dukes and chevaliers and knights. And there was a military order that was hereditary and inheritable. The rulers of the kingdom were quote unquote ordained by God through the church. And they set the, the tone and culture of the, and the laws of the country. And it was up to them to rule people as sort of benevolent, benevolent dictators. And the fundamental idea was the church ordained a king. The king had a duty to the people to protect them. The people had a duty to work for the king and supply him with his wants and needs. And he was stronger and more capable militarily. And if you were born into aristocracy, then you had power and privilege. And if you were not born into aristocracy, you had a responsibility. This is a horrible way to live if you're in one side of the equation versus the other. And, you know, as people complain about, you know, income inequality and power inequality, uh, we've got nothing on, on medieval England or medieval France or medieval Germany. I mean, it's, it's just a completely different world, right? But slowly, slowly, slowly from the time of the Magna Carta in the 1100s, that structure was attacked as inequitable. So at first the nobility said, Hey, why don't we get a say in how we rule at all? Why is it, why are we at the whim of the king? And they rebelled and they forced the king to sign something called the Magna Carta. And it started to grant these initial rights, like trial by your peers. And in their mind, your peers meant other nobility. So the king couldn't judge noble people at a whim. There had to be a trial and there had to be other nobles. And slowly the power between the king and those that he ruled 
started to get chipped away over the arc of, you know, 800 years. It took forever. Um, and it, it ended in Cromwell's glorious revolution where Parliament took power from the king and actually beheaded him. Um, and unfortunately then, you know, sort of reduced themselves to minor squabbles about how much money they could make and keep and exploit. And Cromwell threw a fit and got rid of, got rid of Parliament and ruled as the protector of the realm for five years as sort of a pseudo-king. And then the British invited another king in. But that, those are slow chipping away. And Parliament never lost all of its power in England after that. It still kept some privileges and more and more happened. <clears throat> and this comes in the, in the shadow of slowly fundamental changes in technology that empowered individuals to assert themselves in ways that they weren't unable to. So the gun, for example, was a radically different societal changing instrument because no longer did you have to, from early age, train to be a horse-mounted warrior in armor and have you know, no other schooling and to be able to be successful on the, on the battlefield. Right now you take some putts of a peasant, train him for three weeks how to shoot, hmm. right? And, you know, the charging knight could, you know, charge down the hill and bang and he's dead. And that, that's a radically different, you know, way of expressing a society when military power is now distributed. And the Swiss proved it in battles against the Holy Roman Empire and were able to carve out their own little entities. And they created one of the first federations where there were small cantons that glommed together in a governmental agent called, you know, uh, the, they called it the Helvetic Republic. But, you know, these things slowly gestated in, in Europe. Um, and England didn't pay attention to what was going on in America, right? They threw colonists over there and they, they ruled, the colonies ruled themselves in general on their own for a couple hundred years. I mean, the British would send ships over and extract money and, and whatnot, but you had this very, very, very malformed uh, colonial relationship where you had private companies that had colonies that were chartered by the king. The king sort of said, I give you the right to go there and I will tax you. You had crown colonies where the king and, and the monarchy actually owned and ran the colonies. But almost all of the colonies by the mid-1750s had some form of executive branch and governor and some sort of legislative branch in a house, hmm. a house of Burgess with an upper chamber and a lower chamber. And this very much modeled the British experience of a king and a house of commons and a house of lords. So the house of commons, you didn't have to be a lord to be a member of. In the house of lords, you had to be a lord to be a member of. So this is how monarchy and aristocracy kept some level of privileges and power throughout the time. And it's sort of into that, you know, cauldron of intellectual and 
economic turmoil that you have the American Revolution, right? So you have 13 independent and separate colonies that have their own legal and their own administrative systems with almost no overlap that were all treated the same by the, by the British, but they were separate. And this is why the, in the first Continental Congress, the representatives from the Carolinas were like, hey, I know you Bostonians and you people from Massachusetts, you're having problems with the king, but we're not. Why? We don't need to step up and join your fight. This is your issue, not our issue. And the, the big, first big sort of intellectual argument that Adams and Franklin and the Northerners had with the Southerners was that, no, 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 we are all American colonies. We may be separate, but we will all be put under the same thumb of the British. And, and they were, right? They, they, both, they all had the same taxation issues and they all had the same blockade issues. But the it took in the in the summer of 1776, it took months and months and months of argument and going back to the houses of representation in the states to get to the first big inflection point, which is the Declaration of Independence. Mm-hmm. That was the first radically different document. Right. Prior to that, from 1772, from the early 1770s until 1776, while the British were passing what the Americans called the Intolerable Acts, they weren't sure as a group if they were going to be fighting for independence. They were fighting for representation. They felt they were British. They felt that they deserved representation in the House of Commons, that they deserved to vote on and participate in the governing of their own lives just as people in England are able to. What to in their view, why is a why is somebody from Boston, England, and there is a town called Boston, England, why are they able to vote on their taxation and somebody from Boston, Massachusetts couldn't? Right? Because we're colony? So what? We're British. This is all financial though. It's, right? it, no, it's more than financial, right? I mean it's because I mean the time it's not like they can vote by proxy by, you know, by Zoom. There's still the, the time, the the logistics of, of dealing with the information well, they, and all they, that stuff. I mean, it's sure, things but, are things move at a snail's pace as it is. They're but, crossing an ocean. But they move but, but but things moved at a snail's pace anyway. I mean they, they had very, very different lives. So you elected some guy from Boston and you gave him some orders and you sent him off to England for a three year, you know, House of Commons stint or whatever. And then when something when you heard something big, you wrote a letter and you sent it over there. Things just moved slower in general, so who cares? So what kinds of things were they... I'm just curious, like, what kinds of things were they deciding on? What were these... What, 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 what was the representation they were seeking what, well, in the area of... Well, the, well let's invert it. What, what were the intolerable acts that caused them to say, this this doesn't work, right? So they... Uh, it, well, it started about money, absolutely, right? The... American theater of battle in the Seven Years' War in the French and Indian, what we call the French and Indian War, which is actually the Seven Years' War, which was a global struggle between the British Empire and the French Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, the British felt that they 
paid a lot of money and spent a lot of time and energy and treasure in defending the American colonists. And therefore, the American colonists need to pay up. And the American colonists were like, um, we're pretty happy with taxation the way it is. I mean, like, we're not really, we're not really down with this new stuff. And so the British just start ratcheting up the pressure and they started taxing things like, they started with like playing cards and postage stamps. And, oh, do you want to get a deed on your house? That's an extra 10 shilling because you're American, mm -hmm. right? So it's just the basic functions of everyday life started to become invaded by these oppressive taxes that you had no say in. And then it became, you can only trade with British ships that go to London and you can only do, you can't, you have no freedom. And, you know, most Americans moved originally for freedom or opportunity or economic opportunity. Mm -hmm. And the British were like, mm, yeah, thanks. Pay up now. And, you know, at first the Americans colonists were like, sure, we'll pay up, but we got to vote on it. Let us participate. Mm -hmm. And King George went, yeah, no. Parliament went, yeah, no. Now, as an aside, King George was going insane at this time. A known insanity. It was a weird time in British government, you know, but still parliament did not say you're right let's uh let's establish boston and philadelphia and new york and um and places in south carolina as you know representative cities that people can vote and they can send a representative and you know in my mind it's silly <laughs> now give the americans five votes in parliament it's not going to sway the difference but they won't have the argument about revolution right so in this cauldron of pay up and the um and the americans going hey we want representation why are you censoring what we can say why are you shutting why are you why are you putting troops into our houses and making us bear the cost of them why are you not letting us trade freely and giving monopoly to your favored companies why are you in, in you know interdicting our freedoms when we have no representation and the british were like because the king is the king and you bow to the king and the king is the king, mm -hmm. right? So you have this struggle between free people and subjects, citizens and subjects. And, you know, the first shots of the, of the American revolution occurred on the Boston in, in Boston, right? You know, the shot, you know, when the, when they were protested. Now, interestingly, John Adams defended the British soldiers. He said they actually did nothing wrong. They were accosted by a mob and threatened and, you know, um, thrown and frozen oyster shells were thrown at them. And, you know, people were screaming fire, fire from behind them. Hmm. And one of the guys shot and he got them off. He, he proves that they were that they did not instigate the violence, but yet that's the, sort of the first deaths and the, the hallmark of it. But the first battle of the American Revolution actually happened around a very prominent you know uh, issue today: gun control. The first battle was in the wake of these these mob riots in Boston. The British general Gage felt very uncomfortable with the populace around him in the in the in the countryside in the towns just outside of Boston having arms he was not comfortable 
with the the the, the colonists having access to gunpowder and, and muskets and cannons. So he said, I'm going to go take your guns so I feel safe. Mm. Right? And this is not historic, you know, the historical comparison is if somebody in, say, Portland said, you know, I'm not comfortable with these Antifa riots and, you know, that they're them trying to burn down the courthouses and them trying to, you know, mob people. And, and, you know, there's gun murders are up. I'm going to take everybody's gun in Portland and the surrounding area. It's a very similar idea. And famously, a number of uh, people inside of Boston had spies and they learned about what the British were doing and they had to know which road they were going down. And this is, you know, Paul Revere's very famous, you know, one, one, if, one lantern if by land and two if by sea, right? One if they're going to go through the bay and disembark in the march or if they're going to come out the, out the neck of Boston. And the first battle, real battle, was Lexington and Concord, where the British came to take Americans' guns away. And the Americans went, mm, no, that's a, that's a hard no. And, you know, I've stood at the North Bridge in Concord, where the British stood against American farmers, basically, you know, citizen farmers were standing on a hill, a couple hundred of them. And the British army was standing at a bridge going, whatever, you're going to stay there. We're going to, we're going to sack your town and we'll get out of here. And the Americans went, no. And they charged the hill and took the bridge and started rolling the British all the way back to Boston over the entire day. And thousands of American citizens showed up and said, we are not willing to have the government come and take our guns. This is, this is going back to our original thing. We have a fundamental right to self-defense. You are not going to take, you're not going to impinge on that right. No. Was that original complaint because they wanted to be able to defend themselves against the British specifically, or is it just they lived in a rough neighborhood and they want well, the right there, to defend there, themselves personally. There are state charters from the 15, 1600s that say that the right to self-defense and the right to arms is, is a fundamental right. Because when you leave Boston and go 400 mi 300 miles west of Boston and you're in the middle of what is now Massachusetts, at the time it was Indian country and at the time it was wild country with yeah. all sorts of animals and you were hacking a farm out of the woodlands and you were doing, you know, incredibly hard work and you, there was no army, there was no police, there was nothing. It's not that there was a, a tough neighborhood, there was no neighborhood. You were it. No 911 to call. No 911, right? At best, you rang a bell or you sent your kid to run over to the next farm two miles away and somebody else showed up, Ooh. right? They had a, a very different outlook. They had an outlook that they took care of themselves because they were in the middle of nowhere and, and, Damn you if you're going to take my ability to, to defend myself. Well, at this point, people who are against at this the point Second back, Amendment, back then or at this point? No, at this point right now yeah. in our conversation, yeah. people who are anti-gun, let's, let's call them, mm -hmm. would say, well, this just props up my point. It was a different time and place, different circumstances. Sure. And of course, I can understand that back then you would want it, but now we're in a different situation, okay. civilized society, 911. You know, all that stuff. Which is, which is all well and good, but there's a mechanism in the Constitution itself 
that says, if you want to change any element of the constitution, here's how you do it. Yeah. Right. If you want to change, if you want to get rid of the second amendment, call a convention of the states or have two thirds of Congress pass a resolution to be approved by the states. There are multiple mechanisms to get rid of the second amendment, right? No problem. But the second amendment is, does not say I am granting you the right to a gun. The second amendment says you have a right to a gun and the government shall not impinge on that right. So you can rewrite the second amendment and say, you have the right to some guns <laughs> or you have a right to a gun, but the government can impinge on that right to this degree. And there's a mechanism to do that, right? We've used that mechanism, uh, you know, since the constitution passed, what, 16, 15, 16, 17 times. Sure, go do it. But the point is you can't, right? And that's, that's, that's one of the fundamental conflicts that we're trying to deal with, which is there was a clear intent and a clear purpose and a clear context to all of the amendments. And there's a mechanism to change them. Just follow the rules. Don't make them up. Don't try to implement things that go against the implied process. It's sort of like saying, these are the rules of chess, but I want to move my, my knight to that corner. So I'm just going to do it. Them's not the rules. Right. Right. And those aren't the rules that the state signed up with. So, but going, going back, we have this unbelievable revolution against the British. You know, how we won, nobody really understands, although, it, you know, we can understand it because the British didn't put enough resources into the, into the fight. And we form a government in 1792, one, two, under something called the Articles of Confederation. So the first American government was the Articles of Confederation, which was a very, very loose sort of like, hey... If one state needs help, it can ask another state for help, right? There, there was no, there was very little federal power and it didn't work. It just didn't work, right? Things Why not? Because states started competing with each other. States started conflicting with each other. Um, taxation was a real problem. There was never enough money for the do stuff. When one state asked for help, the other state went like, well, think about it. There was, it wasn't enough of a mm. tight enough compact to make this work right and then we had what i would call the second american revolution and the second american revolution was the second continental congress where we created the constitution you know when when, when the second continental congress was created they thought they were going in to make adjustments to the articles of confederation and they realized very early on like mm, uh, that this thing's so badly formed. We gotta, we gotta start over. Mm -hmm. And they closed the windows and they closed the doors and they said, "We need to have an honest, open conversation without people looking in, and let's talk about this." So they wrote a document, and they said, "Here are the powers that the states are going to be willing to give up." and give to the federal government. And here are the limitations of the powers of the federal government. But two key issues. One, the states were still considered sovereign. They were considered the fundamental power. States can do things that the federal government cannot, not the other way around at that time. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is that in, under the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, the Constitution is clearly instructed that only those things that are specifically mentioned in the Constitution are granted to the, to the federal government. Otherwise, the power and the rights relied to the states and the people. 
Okay? The Constitution is a limiting document, not an expansive document. Funny because I, I kind of took it for granted in, high, in school learning this, but it means much more to me as an adult in this era that, you know, it invokes God, it invokes natural rights. Yes. It invokes the, the abilities and rights that we all have as free human beings. Correct. It doesn't start from the perspective of your subjects and here's what you can do, here's what you can't do. Correct. I think a lot of people either don't consider that, don't understand its implications, or maybe just naturally disagree with it or, or remember it completely differently. But that kind of that's the that's the table on which this whole thing is set. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. If you don't get that, then naturally it's like you're not gonna get anything else in, in this entire conversation or any conversation about the constitution or about laws and and, and, and government. Right. That's exactly right. So I mean, it has these very, very, very weird affects in today's society. For example, what is the fundamental nature that justifies federal power in, you know, across certain items? For, you know, here's a good example. Where does the federal government get off saying that, I don't know, carjacking is a federal crime, right? It doesn't cross state borders. There are state crimes for... You know, carjacking. There are federal crimes for carjacking. What? Why are there? Why are there, why there are these multiple layers of laws? Because almost all federal power outside of, say, military and immigration and some taxation, derives from the Commerce Clause of the of the Constitution. The Commerce Clause says that the federal government shall have power to sort of pass laws around the commerce between the states and the between states between states and other nations and between states and the indian nations right so at the time they didn't want north carolina having a different set of rules to trade with south carolina and pennsylvania right they didn't they didn't want this patchwork of of trade laws and immigration laws etc so they said look if if you've got um if you've got some wood that you're selling to make furniture and you harvest it in South Carolina and you ship it to North Carolina, North Carolina can't say, well, that wood has a one penny per thousand foot board feet tax. But if the same wood is coming from Pennsylvania, it's three pennies, right? Because the states all said, we want to be treated equally among ourselves. So we have to give up a little bit of this power to the federal government to make sure that it's all we'd get treated the same, okay? But what does that have to do with, say, carjacking or, or horse thievery, right? How does the federal, federal, because the federal government made the argument and the courts agreed, carjacking can affect how people perceive the city in which the carjacking occurs, which means that people may not visit uh, uh, on from out of state for tourism and therefore carjacking affects interstate commerce well, once you open up that door you have a lot of things you can sell around various cities and correct and and much of this was justified in a court case called wicker v v filburn i believe where during the depression the federal government said you know you you have to charge this amount for your your hay and wheat and and feed and this guy said okay great 
I grow my own wheat and I feed it to my cows. I don't need to charge anybody anything or pay any taxes on it. And the federal government said, "Uh uh-uh. The fact that you're not putting this onto the market affects the interstate market so we control it. Wow. Right. That sounds like an overreach. Well, since since the mid-30s, it's been the basis of the federal government saying, anything you do can affect commerce. Therefore, we can regulate anything you do. Was this for him to consume himself or for him to sell? For, For him to consume and his animals to consume. It never left his farm. Pretty severe. Right. I mean, that's like saying you not buying insurance affects the insurance industry. So we have the right to tell you to buy insurance. This doesn't it. A la Obamacare, which was then justified under different reasons because it was not that we made you buy insurance. It's that we just taxed you when you didn't do something. I was thinking if you brew your own beer, you don't go out to bars or buy Michelob in the supermarket. You consume it yourself. Which is, again, why the federal government has said until until Carter's time that nobody can brew beer. And Seriously. Carter, yeah. And, I didn't know that. And Carter said, well, people can brew, you know, X gallons for personal consumption. And then boom, a microbrewery industry just exploded. Mm-hmm. Much like the federal government saying marijuana is illegal. And now the states are saying, well, not so much. And, you know, there's always this, this, this tension. But much of the federal government's power is derived from the fact that behavior in, in, impacts commerce between the states. So go, right? They can regulate guns because the materials ship between states in order to make the gun, right? Hmm. All sorts of power. It's, it's the anchor of that power. But I don't believe that's what it was intended for. That's been a stretch under federal power overreach. But if you read the Constitution and you read it with the right eye, you read it with the eye, as you said, we're citizens. We have freedoms. The Constitution is a document that says the, go- the government can do these things and these things only, and it can't do these things and it can't do anything else. In other words, so if it's not in the Constitution, it's, it's assumed to be legal and proper. Uh, n- and- n- not quite. If it's not in the Constitution, the power to regulate it de- devolves to the states okay, so, okay. Or, or the people, right? Which is why you can have different drinking ages in the past between states. You can have different speed limits. You have, here's one, you have different self-defense laws, right? Why does one state have stand your ground and, and another state have duty to retreat? Because the states have, have the sovereign power over their citizens, not the federal government. And the states can dictate behaviors in a way that the federal government can't. The federal government has to do it under a, a, an explicit power, mm-hmm. which in many cases they don't have, right? So here's a great example. The federal government has the power of taxation, but they had to pass a, an amendment to grant them the power to tax income. Think about that for a second. So the taxation before was only on goods? Like was on sell goods? Or? On goods and services and tariffs and all, you know. Basically sales tax. Well, sales tax, uh, shift tax. taxes. Use taxes, land taxes, but not income. But not income. We needed the what the sixteenth or seventeenth amendment to get income tax. Until then, nobody did income tax at the federal level. It wasn't mm-hmm. legal, right? Which is why, in my view, you should interpret the Constitution as narrowly as possible. It was intended to be to be as narrow as possible. Yeah, you hear that phrase a lot when they're discussing laws with you know in one of the circuits or right. Supreme Court. How you know narrow or broad 
the interpretation can be. And I've always kind of wondered, you can kind of play favorites if you're for or against something. Sure. Broaden it out or... Right. And, and this is where you get, you know, the two fundamental judicial philosophies are t of today are sort of strict construction, original intent, mm. or living document. You know, one side, mainly the conservative side, says, look, when somebody passes a law, we should understand what they meant by the law and try to adhere to what they meant by the law as much as possible because we have mechanisms to both change the law and to change the Constitution. When they said, for example, a person should be securing their home and their papers, does that literally mean only things that are written down on paper? Or does that mean that in your communication, in whatever form that takes, right? How do we how do we deal with that? Interesting. I could see. I, it's funny. In one circumstance, I can see narrow. In another circumstance, I can see broad. Right. It's interesting. That that's that's a fascinating right juxtaposition. So, so when they wrote the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, did they mean only the arms that were available at the time, or did they mean arms that are available at any time? Mm -hmm. Right. They could have said. Right, the right to keep musket and black powder cannon, and you know the the list of these weapons shall be not be infringed, but that's not what they said. Right, they said arms, and they weren't stupid short-sighted. They're not stupid short-sighted people, right? So, as you approach modern-day problems, and as you approach, yeah, you know, modern-day laws, you have to think about. What's your interpretation methodology? What's your understanding of the formation documents? What's your under, like, and on one hand, you have sort of the Constitution and the federal government rules everything, and the states are subsidiary. And on the other hand, you have no, 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 no. The states are primary, and they gave up a limited set of power to form the federal government. And the federal government should be restricted to only that power which is explicitly granted to them and none other, right? And these are very different outlooks. What are the names of the different groups that subscribe to the two different philosophies? Oh, well, in today's parlance? Yeah. In general, what we would call a progressive or a liberal or the Democratic Party, in general, ascribes to that the federal government has ultimate power and that the states are subsidiary. And conservative, libertarian, Republicans tend to believe that the federal government should be limited in power and the states are state rights. However, that's not so 100% clear. For example, if you ask a California Democrat whether or not the state should be subsidiary to the federal government when it comes to uh, marijuana and immigration, they would say, we're not helping the federal government go pound sand. You know, we're going to release illegal immigrants into the country, uh, in, into the state, even if the federal government asks for it. Even, like, we're just not going to help the sanctuary, sanctuary states, sanctuary cities because of, because of states' rights, right? But there's very, very, very little difference, from a, in my view, from an a intellectual process for the same right that's being asserted by say texas or montana that says well we're not going to help the atf hunt down ghost guns and gun owners because the right to bear arms is a, a second amendment fundamentally protected right nor is it different right like then 
some of the arguments that slaveholding states said where slavery was legal. And why should the federal government be able to come in and tell us to not have slaves? Now, I'm not sla saying slavery is a good thing. Slavery is a horrible, 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 evil thing. Let's, not, let's, let's get beyond that. But the argument is a similar states' rights argument. Right? It has to be consistency, essentially. Right. And acknowledgement of, of hypocrisy. And, and the, 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 the Northern Republicans proposed an amendment to the Southern states saying, we will amend the Constitution and say that we will never get rid of slavery in current slaveholding states. We just don't want it to expand anymore. And the slaveholding states said, no, we reject that. And the slaveholding states went a step beyond not only by by fighting the slave the the Republican Party, but by taking federal property when they seceded from the Union. Right. So there's a difference between saying I'm not going to help you, and I'm no longer a party of the federal government. Those are two different statements. Slavery was a huge part of the Civil War, but there's another part that isn't really talked about, which is that the federal government was putting tariffs and trade restrictions and benefits. Benefits to the northern states and trade restrictions to the southern states in very subtle ways, and the south was not having any of it. And um, the concern that the southern states had is if you added California and New Mexico and Arizona and Colorado and Utah and all of these new western states as non-slave-only states, you would go from a 50-50-ish in the Senate to a 60-40-70-30-ish. And they would lose their political power and eventually they would be overrun. And that the, the combination of wanting to maintain slavery, wanting to assert their states' rights, and wanting to be treated economically the same led them to conclude that the North, as much as they would say they would be compromising, would eventually not be. Now, they may be right, they may be wrong, it doesn't matter. But they said that they no longer wanted to participate in, in a union of states into a federal government in which they felt that they were not being fairly treated. Now, that does not justify what they did. It does not justify slavery. Slavery was a huge part of it, but it, it's wrapped in a bigger picture than just, it's all about slavery. There, there's other aspects that slavery touched upon, and without slavery, we wouldn't have had the Civil War for sure, but it's not just slavery, right? What happens if, you know, here's a great example. What happens if Texas tells the federal government that, no, we're not going to take away people's guns. Let's say the federal government just says, we're taking away people's guns, and Texas says, no, we're not going to. And the federal government, you know, invades, and Texas fights back. And we have a civil war over that issue. Is it about guns, or is it about the rights of Texas and Texans to, right? It, 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 it's a little more nuanced. Yeah. You know, I'm sure some people are going to misinterpret what I say or what we say here and, you know, say we love slavery, but no, it's no, completely not true. We do not love slavery. We do not. So there's, there's sort of two subjects that I want to uh, explore and end on. One is um, the French Revolution and how it differs fundamentally from the American Revolution. And the other is sort of the, the intent and the formation of the current federal government under the Constitution and how it compares and contrasts to our European cousins. So the French Revolution was actually a result of the American Revolution. So what happened? The French, they hate the British, hate them with the passion of a, burning, of a thousand burning suns. And largely Benjamin Franklin 
and to some extent, Adams may, may have helped, may have hurt the ambassadorship of, uh, of Franklin in France. And, you know, Franklin convinced the French to help the Americans overthrow monarchy. So you have one monarch paying the rabble and lower non-aristocratic classes of another monarch to overthrow the power of that monarch. And they either ignored or didn't see the danger of enabling a newly freed people to overthrow the monarchical rule that they live under. And the French government borrowed hundreds of millions of livres, their, their currency, to fund their own army and to loan to the Americans to fight the British because the French hate the British. Mm -hmm. Well, that bill came due around, say, 1789. <laughs> and the French monarchy kept asking the various, what they call estates, but groups of people in, um, in France for more and more taxes. So the French monarchy taxes the second estate, the uh, nobility, and they tried to tax the third estate, the clergy, and they just kept doing more and more taxes. And finally, the French people, nobility included, said, we're done with the taxes. We, we can't do it anymore. So it was debt that drove the taxes that caused the French Revolution. So it started with a grand assembly uh, where they just told the king, we can't pay these taxes. And they actually went out to his tennis courts and they, they made a declaration of the rights of man, much like the American Declaration of Independence. Whoa. Right? You know, where for us, it's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. For them, it's egalité, liberté, fraternité. Equality, liberty, and brotherhood. And the like. But it's part of that, that cauldron of the age of revolution where absolute monarchy is being crumbled by the rights of individuals to have a say in, in how they live their lives. But the French Revolution took a very different path than the American Revolution. The French Revolution was centered in Paris. Sort of, he who holds Paris holds France. Really? And just after the French Revolution started, you had these waves of, of, of power-hungry people taking control of Paris, and you had something called the Committee of Safety run by Robespierre, and they started killing everybody. And people who disagreed with them got killed. And there was essentially a civil war because the Parisians wanted to tax the other regions of France, and the other regions of France were like, oh, we're not down with that. So there was a, literally a civil war because in, in the mind of the French, Paris is the government and the regions are subsidiary to the Parisian government, to the French government. Mm -hmm. And out of this cauldron of all sorts of problems finally emerged Napoleon, who basically took over and, and used the dual ideas of republic and monarchy and emperorship to push the revolution forward because, you know, once the Committee of Safety killed their king, all the other um, monarchies around the corner 
we're like, well, we got a little problem with this. Maybe mm-hmm. we don't want the French quite to be so powerful. And they invaded to reestablish monarchy. And But the, the genie was out of the bottle, right? Between Cromwell over th- killing his king, the Americans dis- you know, deposing British monarchical rule in America, and the French, you know, killing their king and lots of their nobility, like the process was started and, and it, you know, it just kept going and fits and starts over the, or from there forward, mm-hmm. right? But that's fundamentally different than the American Revolution, which was state-based and the states fought and they came together to form a government as opposed to the Parisian government enforcing its rule down on the regions, right? It's a very different thing, much like the different form of government that it took. Meaning, in Europe, they followed largely the parliamentary process. England had it, France had it, you know, the Dutch Republic did not. The Dutch Dutch are much more like Americans in that way. They were city-states that formed a, a republic. The Swiss did not. Um, but under a parliament, you know, what you consider the three branches of government, the judicial, the executive, and the legislative, are not co-equal branches. Under a parliament, the executive branch is subsidiary to and bases its power from the legislative. What do I mean? So in England, for example, you have an election and you have however many people are in their, in parliament whatever, 300. I'm American. I don't know the exact number. And those 300 are spread across, say, eight to 10 different parties. You've got labor and conservative and the Greens and the Scottish independents and, and, and. And in order to, quote unquote, form a government, meaning install an executive team to run the government as opposed to a legislative team to, to pass laws, you need to cobble together a majority of parliamentarians to vote for the governmental slate. Mm-hmm. And that's why they don't have a president. They have a first minister or a prime minister, right? A member of parliament is a minister, and the one that is elected to run the government is the prime minister. And therefore, elections for the prime minister can happen, honestly, at any time, right? If the prime minister does something, then the the coalition that elected the, the ministers to power can just say, I'm holding a vote of no confidence. And boom, the government falls and they have to have a new election to elect new, new a new parliament, to elect a new government. Mm-hmm. And the Americans saw this. They're like, ah, right? That means that the administration of the government is just you know, at the whim of the parliament. And there's a lot of problems with that. Also, that doesn't really assert the rights of the states to do things. If the administration of the government can be changed all the time, right? Mm -hmm. So the Americans set out a very, very, very different structure, right? They set out and said, the executive and the judicial and the legislative are all co-equal branches of government. They have specific roles and responsibilities, but they are are separate and equal and 
they balance each other out, right? In a parliamentary system, there's no balance, right? If Boris Johnson pisses off too many of his own party, he's just removed and he has no power. Where mm-hmm. if Joe Biden pisses off too many of his party, yeah. it takes a lot to remove a president. A lot. We've seen that. We've seen that, right? You know, it's only, yeah, we've only had what, four presidents impeached, three presidents impeached, and then none of them convicted at trial. Right. So it takes a lot. Besides the judicial being co-equal to everybody else, the judicial is nominated by the president and approved by the Senate. Right. So the judicial is not dependent on, but balanced by the two other branches. Mm-hmm. The president is elected by the people of the states through an electoral college so that the states have some basis of participating in the election of the executive, but not a total basis, right? They they didn't have the Senate elect the president because there you'd have to get a majority of the states, but they didn't have the House of Representatives or the population elect the president because then it was just be purely population based. So there's, there is an imbalance because you have to balance out the wants and needs of the people and the wants and needs of the states because the states are sovereign. The states are the contracting party to the constitution, not the people, the states are, right? And that's why in the legislative branch, you have this hybrid compromise system. You have a lower house, which is population-based and is elected every two years. And you have this upper house, the Senate, which is elected every, turned over every six years, one third every two years, and is represented equally among the states. It is meant to be a slow moving and deliberative body. It is meant to be a check upon the unfettered urges of both the executive branch to appoint whoever they want to run government because they have, they have, they have to advise and consent. Mm-hmm. And they're a check upon the, what, they would, what the founders would call the passions of the populace to willy-nilly declare war and do things, right? They're a check. They're not meant to be democratic. They're meant to be deliberative and slow-moving and Republican. Not in the political sense, but in the republic sense, where they think about the rights of people, right? Our founders disliked democracy intensely. They, they saw it as no different than being ruled by a monarch, right? If the passions of one, a monarch can be inflamed and dictate what you do with your life, that's very different than the passions of 50% plus one vote dictating what you can do with your life. Mm-hmm. You, they, they wanted, yes, they wanted participation in the government, but they also wanted the rights of minority groups to be protected by law and not to be overrun, right? Rights do not get voted on. Your right to free speech is not something that's granted and voted on. You have the right to express yourself, period. Right. So when the Supreme Court does get involved in something... Does it always rise up from the state to the like a circuit court, which I guess is a group of states, to the Supreme Court to decide so- simply if it's constitutional or not constitutional? So, is that uh, correct? In general, yes, but there are exceptions. So, in general, if the dispute is between two non-state parties, so say um, 
uh, you know, someone who lives in Nevada sues somebody who lives in California, right? So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it becomes a federal court issue. And it goes to the Ninth, Ninth, Ninth Circuit Federal Court, and then it goes to the Ninth Circuit Federal Appeals, and then it would go to the Supreme Court because it's a, it's, it's a dispute among parties between states. Alternatively, if, let's say there's a, um, make an easy one, right? There's a questionable search and seizure in the state of California by the police, and the defendant is asserting that his constitutional right to be under the Fourth Amendment to be protected, even even though it was a state crime, it became a federal issue because of this his assertion of the violation of the Fourth Amendment. Mm-hmm. Then it would go from a state court to a federal appeals court to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court really tries to take cases that have disputes among the circuits, right? If the Ninth Circuit Appellate Court ruled in a way that was in line with every other circuit court and or in line with how the Supreme Court had previously ruled on the issue, the Supreme Court might say, this is already ruled on, we don't need to look at it. The one, there are a couple of cases where cases, pardon the pun, would go directly to the Supreme Court and the most sort of important of them are disputes between the states themselves, mm-hmm. right? So recently there was a case about water rights where I think it was like Tennessee and Mississippi or Tennessee and Alabama are fighting over who has rights to underground water that comes from a river and flows underground, et cetera, right? So this is a, you know, th- this isn't private property. These aren't private citizens. These are, are issues between the states themselves and the federal government and the, the, the Supreme Court is the court of first jurisdiction in disputes between the states themselves. Okay. Okay. But they're much rarer. You want to come by me? I'll drive you home or did you walk to me or did you I drive, drive to me? Okay. Because I'm going to work. Gotcha. Right. But the, 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 the going back, the, our, the founding fathers hated democracy. Was there anything in existence at that time that was a democracy? No, but the, the, but yet they knew they couldn't go. They knew they knew it fully in that direction. So they had seen it in limited forms, and during the Reformation, and when cities would sort of break away and they become democracies. But but they looked at Greece, and they looked at Rome, and they looked at history. And there was no socialism or communism. Oh, they time. they hated socialism. They hated. Was the there socialism at that time? Yeah, absolutely. Where and and you... so Thomas Jefferson is famous for saying. Something along the lines of, it is the grossest of violations to take the product and and monies from one person because their father was too productive, and give it to the to another because their their father was not productive enough. Mm-hmm. I can dig up the, the exact quote. They believed in private property. They believed in in keeping what you earn. They believed that we were citizens that should work and, and, and achieve and be moral, and we should have the rights to the fruits to our labor. Mm-hmm. Right? They did not believe in, you know, the redistribution of wealth via government. They were all for charity, but they weren't for forced government charity. 
Mm-hmm. Right? You know, somehow, I think it's Thomas Sowell that says, it's it's hard to say, why, why is it greed to keep what you want, but not greed to take what somebody else has and give it to somebody, give it to a third person, right? It, it's both, it's all greed, right? The, the, I, I think it was um, Franklin who said, democracy is two wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner, mm-hmm. right? It was um, Adams who said that democracies never fail to burn themselves out and destroy themselves in, in, the, in a fit of violence and rage. Mm-hmm. Right, because if you have pure democracy, there's no reason to compromise at all. My job, if I'm in a democratic institution, a purely democratic institution, is to get one vote more than fifty percent and do whatever I want. Mm-hmm. And that's why the Senate said, "Okay, hold on. We want to be deliberative. We want to be slow. We want to." put a a break on the passions of the populace and the passions of the lower house we're going to say that big issues have to be decided by a filibuster by, by a filibuster proof almost supermajority of 60 votes if you can't get 60% of the population to agree to something then it probably is too conflicting to do it is their view and now you have the liberals and the Democrats and the progressives saying that's anti-democratic. Well, yes, it's anti-democratic. They didn't want to be democratic. They hated democracy, Uh right? We are a democratic republic, right? America is the, the AP class on civics, right? We expect ourselves to be citizens. We expect us to work hard. We expect us to participate. We expect us to be informed. It's expected for us to be moral. Right. Franklin said, you know, you now have a republic if you can keep it. Right. Adams said that our constitution, essentially, that our constitution is good only for our moral and religious people and not good for any other. Right. Because we have to be self-limiting and live as individuals and live within these limitations. Otherwise, if we if, if the view of our lives is you can do whatever you want until you're caught then you're going to tax the, the resources of society to keep society going. You know, here's a great example. Do we not steal because we're going to get caught? Or do we not steal because it's immoral and wrong to steal? Right? If you have a society where it's like, steal whatever you can until you get caught, well, then everybody has to spend money on security and everybody has to spend money on, right? Then you, you have to expend your societal and personal efforts on things that you don't have to expend if you have the morality of stealing being bad. We have the expectation, right? Which is why you see these incredible increases in theft when you go and say, hey, if you steal less than $950 worth of stuff, it's just a misdemeanor. Okay, great. That's just happened in California. That's just happened in California and San Francisco and other places, right? So... But going back to what we're trying to talk about, which is America is different. We are imperfect. We are not the, we, you know, we are not perfect and should not, and we should be, what's the word? We should be subject to examination and change. Mm-hmm. But it should be done within the confines of the Constitution. 
where we have free speech, where if you don't like what I say, don't listen. Don't complain that you're offended and I shouldn't be able to say it. Right? Voltaire, a French revolutionary, said, I may not like what you say, but I will defend to the death your ability to say it. Right? Oh, I'm sorry you're offended that, you know, I say something. Don't listen to it. Go away. Don't banish me. Don't say I can't say it. Don't say that, you know, a person of one color saying a word is different than a person of another color. We should all be treated the same. We should be subject to the same laws, but we should all have the same freedoms, mm-hmm. right? And those freedoms should extend to the freedom to succeed and the pain of failure. Failure is the best feedback mechanism to not do the same thing over and over. And that's why America is different, right? When you talk about the Second Amendment, for example, and you talk to Europeans and they go, well, why do you, why do you Americans, you're crazy to have done? It's like, uh-uh. We're citizens. The government works for us. The government was instituted to be limited in power to do specific things and no more. And if it gets out of line, we're here to stop it. I think it was Marcus Garvey, black independence leader, I believe said, there are four boxes that American society depends on. The soapbox to speak, the ballot box to vote, the jury box to defend themselves in the courts of law, and the cartridge box when all else fails. Wow. Right? Wow. Never heard that before. Yeah. And if you take away the soapbox, and in today's society, you cancel people, and you don't let them speak on, on in what is now public forums like Facebook or Twitter, right? Which, on the one hand, you say are private companies, right? But the other hand, do the bidding of governments, operate on government um, uh, 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 internet lines, and, you know, could be considered the same as hotels, right? Well, why? Surprised you said hotels. I thought you were going to say newspapers because they editorialize and censor as well. No, no. So hotels were desegregated by force because they were public accommodation, because they were seen as essential to the functioning of public operation. Mm-hmm. And at this point, how is Facebook and Twitter and YouTube not essential to the function of public discourse? Right? Yes, they're private companies. Right. But they're part of interstate commerce and they work on monopolistic internet lines that are sanctioned by local and federal governments. Right. Which are the same, is the same thinking why um, private clubs were desegregated. Why? Because they use public roads to get there, they use public utilities to get there. That's interesting. I would have thought in the case of hotels, since they're situated in a specific state. It would be against the interests of that state, not on a federal level, but on a local level. Be biased against people and... and, and... Well, but, but it was the federal government that came in and said, you cannot discriminate on the basis of race in an in in, in Atlanta hotel case. Uh, the logic was it affects interstate commerce, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, fine. Like, I, I'm not against that. I'm just saying, use the same logic. Yeah. Right. And yes, I agree that YouTube and Facebook and the like have become essential to public discourse. And in fact, there are court cases that rule that they are essential to public discourse. And there are court cases that rule that information of on them have value, right? 
But to say that one group of people do not deserve to be heard because I don't like their message. Okay. That, that's censorship. Now, is it okay for a private institution to censor? Yes, it is. But at what point does a large enough group become not private, right? Like why are newspapers regulated? Why are mergers by newspapers regulated by the Federal Communication Commission, the FCC, right? Well, because we realize that information is critical to the, to the discourse in America. And it goes back to the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. And yes, we have to rethink these things all the time. Yes, we have to understand them. Before you start thinking about them, you need to think about what is your a priori assumption? Right? Is your a priori assumption that the federal government rules over everybody and that the states are subsidiary and that, you know, the, the constitution can mean whatever I want it to mean if I can find the word or is it that the states are primary and that the federal government is limited and that we should look back upon the intent of the founders at the time of passing the laws. These affect how you interpret things, right? On the second amendment. When you look at a well-regulated militia being necessary to the exercise of a free state, why is that included? Why is it important? Does it affect things? Is that the reason for it? Or is that an explanation? Mm -hmm. These are all important things that affect how you think about it. And yelling and screaming at each other on YouTube and uh, Facebook and saying you're a fascist and you're a Nazi and you should be killed. All of these exact same things happened in the Revolutionary War, they happened in the pubs. And the British lost the fight in the pubs. That's where the American ethos was born, when people sat around with a pipe in hand, drinking beer, complaining about today. That's where it was won and lost. And then today's pub is Facebook and YouTube. And we've always said until modern times that you are free to say whatever you want. Offense is not a reason to not be able to say something. Words are not violence, right? Words are only violence when you, to the people in power. And that's why the left in the 19, late fifties and early sixties was born out of the free speech movement in Berkeley. You should not be able to limit what I say. I should be able to protest the war. I should be able to do whatever I want. And now Berkeley is the number one persecutor of conservative voices because they because now the left is in power there and they don't want, they're not true free speechers. They're true free power for themselves. Wow. So our next podcast, <laughs> pick a, pick a I, I have to digest this one like, like a, like a thick steak. Um, pick an amendment and let's go into it. I think we should start with second amendment. Okay. Uh, I think there's a lot to be unpacked there. Or, or we started the first, right? And just, just go first, second, third. We could, although. Second Amendment is, is a hot topic. It's a hot topic. I think there's a lot of stuff going on right now. Yeah. We can talk about current events. I, and I also think that the, um, what, what was the, if there wasn't, what was that line? I, I, I'm going to screw it up. Which one? The Second Amendment exists to protect the First Amendment. Right. So. Right. I mean, just understand how wildly different the United States is. We have between 14 and 16 million licensed hunters in this country. The largest military standing army is about three and a half to four million people in China. Mm. We have 14 million 
licensed snipers <laughs> that hunt things. Yes, we're different and proudly so. I don't want to be Europe. I don't want to be another country. Italy, with its parliamentary system, had over 50 governments in 55 years because one vote changes the government. Mm -hmm. That's not stable. We, very inefficient. Very inefficient. We have a stable government. As much as people complain about it, what they're complaining about is it's not getting me what I want. Government's not built to get you what you want. It's built to get what the vast majority of people want. The founders did not want an activist government. They wanted one contained and limited and controlled by the people and by the instruments of government the other arms of government should control each other. It's a very different view. And with that, we should talk next week. All right. Thanks for joining us.